You are listening to Spot On, a health and wellness podcast that breaks through the latest media headlines to provide you with accurate and usable information that is, well, spot on, spot on to meet your needs. I am your host, Dr. Joan Salji-Blake, a nutrition professor at Boston University and the author of the college textbook called Nutrition and You, which is used in colleges across the United States and abroad. Hello, Spot On listeners. Very exciting today. As you saw from the title of this episode, The Future of Food, Making Steaks, Eggs, and Dairy from Plants. What? I mean, are you like, what? Well, that's why we're doing this, because really, you know, according to the International Food Information Council, less than 25% of Americans are really vegetarian, but there's this big plant-based movement. And so I, I invited a guest on today to explain this to us, and more importantly, how the heck you're going to have steaks, eggs, and dairies being made for plant. That is more fascinating. So my, my guest today is Sharon Murray, and she's a, a CFA. That's a certified financial analyst, which let me tell you, that's a hard test to um, <clears throat> pass, so good for her. She's also the Senior Investor Engagement Specialist at the Good Food Institute. And what she does at the Good Food uh, Institute is she partners with investors and startups to increase investment in the alternative protein industry. So that's why I had her on today, because she knows how the heck you can make a steak from a plant. So with that, I want to welcome my good friend here, Sharon Mary, to Spot On. Thank you so much. So excited to be here. All right, Miss Sharon, first of all, let's get, let's get, you know, uh, what the Good Food Institute really does. I, I mean, I, I gave a little bit of a, a, an intro there, but really, what, do you, what is the whole backbone of the Good Food Institute? Yeah, so the Good Food Institute, or you might hear me refer to it as GFI, is quite a mouthful. Okay. <laughs> so we are an international nonprofit that is reimagining meat production. So what that means is we have a global team of over 100 people who are working to build a world where alternative proteins are just no longer alternative. And that's because that's a world where the global food system is better for the planet, for people, and for animals. And, and we have a pretty unique model. So maybe the simplest way to think about us is that we're a think tank, an open source information hub, and an accelerator for alternative protein. So you're really, you're thinking through, you're thinking what the problem was, and this whole thing is based upon Really, uh, we have to feed like 10 billion people by 2050, and that's going to be hard to do, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. We're already using a disproportionate amount of resources to raise animals for food. You have to feed nine calories for a chicken and feed to get just one calorie out. We're using most of our farmable land to produce protein, but getting a minority of our protein out of it. So it's just very inefficient. And as our population grows, that question of how are we going to feed everyone, uh, especially equitably, is a big question that's looming on the horizon. Right. So from from a sustainability and environmental, you know, you, you thank goodness you're, you're in the think tank and you're doing something. But but I also see that, um, you know, there's a big plant-based movement here. It's on restaurants. It's in fast food um, establishments. Why do you think consumers are like more interested in plant-based foods? Yep. So we've actually seen as well as conducted a number of studies on this and study after study indicates that the primary reason people eat or try plant-based foods is health. 
Environmental and animal welfare concerns are also drivers, and environmental concerns are actually increasing if you're comparing studies from last year to studies a few years ago. But health has been the primary driver that consumers at least speak to if you ask them. Well, you know, I'm, I'm loving that. I'm absolutely loving that because, you know, I'm all about health. And and I love the fact that people are really understanding that you can really fight so many diseases like heart disease, certain cancer, stroke, type 2 diabetes with a fork and a knife. And so that they're eating, what they're putting in their body is really affecting the health. And I absolutely love that. And so you're just slipping in too. It's also good for Mother Nature and the environment. So, you know, uh, these plant-based, uh, proteins. And I can't wait to you tell us about the steaks, but you know, they got to taste good. I mean, right? They do. They do. So I mentioned that health and environmental concerns what is what brings consumers into the plant-based category. But if you're actually looking at what makes them make that purchase, what makes them come back, it is taste. And then of course, price. Right. So in other words, I like health and health is a good idea. I don't want to protect the environment, but if it tastes like shoe leather, we're not going forward. I mean, that's really what we're talking here, right? That's right. We've uh, Doctors, environmentalists have been begging people not to eat meat, but it seems that people maybe weren't quite satisfied like the vegans were with our veggie burger 1.0. So we're really moving to our veggie burger, plant-based burger 2.0 and so much more beyond that. So what you're doing, this is really interesting because you know that taste is the number one driver. But health is also important. So you're gonna you're working to make these plant-based foods healthier, but taste like the originals? Yeah, that's right. So just naturally, if you're making a burger, say out of plants, you're going to have some health benefits, right? You've got fiber in there and complex carbohydrates. You don't have any cholesterol, usually less saturated fat. So that is just inherent in, in the way that we're making meat today for making it out of plants. But then yes, we have to make it taste good. Uh, over and over again, we see that consumers care about taste. I care about taste, I'm sure you care about taste. So it's only natural that that is a primary consideration and a primary concern for these startups. You know, we did, a, a, in season four, we did a whole thing on plant-based burgers. And, you know, and, and if I hope that uh, people listening to this could uh, look at, after they finish this fabulous episode with you, go back to this other one that I had another guest on and talking about the plant-based uh, burgers, but, you know, and a taste, and they're making them. Those burgers are tasting pretty darn good. I tasted one of those and they're really good. So again, it's interesting to see how you're going to be able to make steaks and eggs and dairy fruits and plants that taste good and are good for you. And um, I, I didn't disclose this, but I, I was had the luxury of listening to, to Miss Sharon Murray here uh, give a lecture on this and, the, and when I'm, of how this is going to occur and how the um, the future of food <clears throat> is, is from plant-based foods are going forward. And I, I, I'm, I'm sitting there taking notes in the seminar. I'm saying this, I'm having this woman on. I don't care if she's going to, yeah, I'm just pulling her leg and she's coming on. That's why she's on here. And you said in that lecture, there's three ways that you're going to create plant based proteins. And one was a plant-based, like, you know, uh, meats, dairies, and produced from plants. 3D printing, which I can't wait to get to, and fermentation. So, whoa, like, let's talk about these. So, plant-based meats, eggs, and dairy are produced from plants. How the heck are you going to do that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So, as I'm sure you know, and probably your listeners know, 
So plants, just like animal products, are composed of proteins and fats and vitamins, minerals, and water. So made up of the same kind of macro and micronutrients. And so what we're doing is we are starting with these plants. We're growing the crops. We are getting rid of the part of the plants we don't want. So we're ending up with those proteins, fats, and fibers that are ingredients. We're mixing them together in the desired mixture. And then we're putting them through a manufacturing process to make them, to make the taste and the texture as close to meat as we can. All right. So this is like the Beyond Burgers, the Impossible Burgers. So that's all plant-based and it has a texture of ground beef or, or ground chicken or ground turkey, whatever. And and then, then you're adding stuff that is makes it flavorful, that, that mimics the animal an, an, of a burger. That's right. Okay. So, so... Uh, and, and that's probably the one that is going to, to be, you know, that people can identify with that. So they know maybe Beyond Burger, maybe they tasted it. But how how are you going to do eggs? I don't understand that. Yeah. So uh, eggs is a pretty small category today, but growing rapidly. So in our analysis of U.S. retail sales, we saw about 27 million of sales last year, and that was up. I think about 700% from two years prior. So growing quickly. The example that most people probably would have seen is eat just, uh, just eggs. So they've got a liquid egg, uh, or you can buy them actually to put them in the toaster, kind of into a folded omelet format, if you will. Those are made out of mung beans. So they have a lot of interesting functionality that lets them uh go into the form of kind of like a fluffy omelet and also taste and nutritional characteristics that make them similar to eggs. So your protein amount is similar. The taste I think is quite good. Maybe not exactly an egg yet, but pretty darn close and very tasty. All right. So you're going to take protein from plants. Uh, Like you just said, you know, talked about the eggs. What are the protein sources like go into some of these alternatives? you know, plant-based or um, non-animal-based foods? Yep. So the first wave of plant-based foods and and really a lot of the uh, biggest sellers today have been comprised primarily of soybeans and wheat. And that's because these were commodity crops. They're sold uh, in large scales at a low cost and have some pretty good characteristics in terms of the texture that you can achieve from them. But the plant-based 2.0 movement is exploring thousands of other plant species. All of these plants have some amount of protein in them and have some other interesting characteristics. So some examples, if you look at Beyond Meat, they use pea protein as a protein base. Uh, We've all hopefully seen some of these Oatly commercials. They're using oats in their oat milk. And then I just mentioned Eat Just's eggs use of mung beans. So these are some promising additional crops. We're also seeing new ones like sunflower and duckweed, chickpea, uh, as well as algae and other aquatic plants. So the sky is the limit. There are so many plants on this planet that contain protein and that can be turned into some delicious uh, meat, egg and dairy products. This is absolutely fascinating. So I can see like, um, you know, making this kind of protein from, say, soy. I mean, you know, look at tofu and look at tempeh, right? You know, so that's been around for 100,000 years, right? So, but the they, it's always been like a ground mixture, like a ground 
what I've seen in the burger, right? Or they're actually sell, selling that, what I've seen beyond meat. It's, it's a package of meat, and you can make your own meatloaf with it, I guess, you know. Um, so it's, it's, it's going beyond the burger, but it's still in a ground consistency. So how how is you going to create steaks? I just want to, how are you doing this? Yeah, that's an excellent question because that is currently the holy grail of alternative protein. As you said, we've seen a lot of burgers and uh, chicken nuggets, sausages, and et cetera, but we haven't seen a whole lot of steaks or chicken breasts or fish fillets, which is how most people consume their, their protein, the majority of it. So actually, GFI has a multi-million dollar grant right now that's focused on advancing open source science in this area. And then companies in the private sector are working hard to advance this as well. So one way, uh, which you mentioned earlier, is 3D printing. There, there are others, but maybe we'll focus there because it's quite fascinating. So this is a technology that's been applied successfully in the production of everything from shoes to airplane parts to medical devices. And it's now being applied to make meat or steaks more specifically. It allows for this very precise control over the patterning and textures. So there are a couple of startups. Uh, one is Israel-based Redefined Meat. Another is Barcelona-based Nova Meat uh, and others that are using this technology to extrude these very fine fibers of plant-based muscle and fat that are then printed in layers and they're using this digital modeling of meat to be able to replicate the internal structure of that animal-based kind of whole muscle product like a steak. So if you're cutting into it, it really should have the same feel as well as mouthfeel once you're, you get to you know, putting it in your mouth and chewing it up and tasting it uh, as a conventional steak. So, so they're taking the, the, the basis, the proteins and whatever, and through uh, proper machinery, they are aligning them to have the texture of a ribeye is that it i, I mean I, I i i'm it's rare that i'm speechless but i'm a little speechless right now that's fair it's it's very i mean all of this innovation is so fascinating it's it's truly a tech driven business unlike what we've seen in a long time in the food space. I will caveat the 3D printing and say that it is relatively new and, and still expensive, but it holds a lot of promise. And there are other technologies that are being developed that similarly can produce that steak, can produce that chicken breast. Wow, wow. So the third one, that you talked about in this wonderful webinar I was in was fermentation, and that's using live microorganisms. And, and I guess, like the soybeans into the, in, into the tempeh would be the best example of that. But give me, can you give me some more how how that would work? Absolutely, yes. So tempeh is a great example of traditional fermentation. So that's been used for centuries to do things like brew beer and create tempeh. We have two other forms of fermentation that are now being applied to making protein, which are very exciting. So the first is called biomass fermentation. And that's really taking advantage of the fact that these microorganisms can grow very quickly and have high protein content. So you use them to efficiently produce large quantities of protein. Uh, corn, which is Q-U-O-R-N, uh, is an early mover here. They've been making products like this since the 1980s. But we're seeing other startups in the space like BD and Atlast 
which are using this technology to make those whole cut uh, meat products like a bacon or a steak. So this is another technology, more of a biological approach to making that steak product that we were just talking about. The third kind of fermentation is called precision fermentation. And that's where you're really using these microbes as uh, cell factories to produce a specific functional ingredient like a protein. And that's been used also uh, both in food and other fields. So in food, that's been used for a long time to create this enzyme called rennet that produces cheese out of milk. And now we're using it for protein. So one example is there's a company called Perfect Day that is using microbes to produce whey and casein proteins in dairy and then combining it with uh, other plant-based ingredients. So there's actually a ice cream out that you and your listeners can try, which is which uses Perfect Day's whey protein. Uh, it's quite delicious. It's a great, uh, you can just call it a research project and maybe expense it somewhere, but I'd, uh, I'd highly recommend it. It is delicious. So, so, so the, the microbes are making the whey protein that you find in dairy milk, and from that, doing dairy products like the ice cream, making ice cream. Is it? Is it? Yep. Wow. So we're going to have like a Ben and Jerry's microbial ice cream soon, is it? I hope we do. Ben and Jerry's has some pretty good plant-based ice creams, but I'd love to see them expand. That's great. Tell me, now tell me, I also, you had mentioned in, in your lecture, uh, fish. Like, so how, you're going to make salmon from this? Can you explain this? Yeah. So just like the, the chicken, the steak that we were talking about, there's no reason you can't apply these same techniques to making various seafood like salmon. That is a uh, white space opportunity, meaning it's not one that has had quite as much attention as meat thus far, but it is growing very quickly. And it's really important if we're thinking internationally. So in Asia, seafood is a much more important kind of center of plate protein than it is in the US. So you can use these exact same techniques to create fish. And we have some of the same types of challenges that we're fighting uh, within seafood. So environmentally, health-wise, we, we all know you know, that we have to account for how much mercury we're eating if we're consuming fish. So making fish from plants really takes a lot of these kind of issues off the table. Yeah. And so here we go again, is trying to feed 10 billion people by 2050, um, you know, so there's enough food around that we can, everybody doesn't, you know, everybody has enough to eat and people are not going hungry. You know, we, we, we talked about taste being, you know, the number one reason why people um, you know, choose a certain beverage or, or food. But, you know, up there, right under taste is price. So, like, uh, you know, how is the cost of these, you know, like plant-based protein products, you know, with these eggs and alternative or meats or the ribeye that comes from 3D printing compared to, like, supermarket prices for animal foods? Yeah, so... As you can imagine, there's a lot of variety, but on average, they are more expensive today. So meat tends to be maybe one and a half to two times more expensive. Milk can be maybe two times or even a bit more expensive. And that is something that GFI and these startups are working on to bring that cost down, to bring that cost to parity, because that's how we're going to get more consumers eating these products. We want, we don't want price to be a barrier. So a lot of that's going to come with scale and time. This is still a very young industry, mm -hmm. but we're we're already seeing quite a bit of progress. So just last year, we saw both Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat 
uh, reduce prices or offer Beyond Meat offered these 10 burger value packs that were, you know, only a dollar and some cents more expensive than comparable animal-based beef patties. We saw in China, uh, Green Monday, they created this Omnipork product that is a plant-based pork product, and they just reduced their prices this year to bring them to the cost of conventional uh, animal-based pork or even undercut those prices. So we still certainly have a long way to go for all of these products to be at price parity, but we're already seeing some of the leaders, those that got a head start that are selling larger volumes, be able to reduce prices uh, and get us at least part of the way there. Okay, so we got we're we're taking care of the price. I'm concerned about the health because you know I want people to eat more healthfully, and I, I I'm concerned that sometimes they say this is a, a plant based alternative, and ha- that's what has like a halo effect where they think it's healthier. But you know, in some of these burgers, and we did talk about this when we talked about the plant based burgers in season four of Spot On, that some of these burgers were made with coconut oil, which is very high, or, or in, in Boston, we call, we say wicked high in saturated fat. So our, what's coming down the pike with these steaks and these, you know, dairy and whatever, are we looking to make sure that they are not only taste good, the price is coming down, but are they, are they going to be really healthier? Yeah, it's a good question, as you can imagine, one that I get a lot. So the way I like to think about this is it's all relative. So as we talked about earlier, consumers are citing health for eating plant-based foods, which is fantastic. But if we're looking at the average American diet, over a third of people are eating within a fast food restaurant every day. And so when we're switching out your uh, beef burger with a plant-based burger, there are a range of benefits, which we can talk about. But of course, that's not going to be healthier than a kale salad or an Indian lentil dal. So we just, it really is all relative. It really depends on what you're already eating day to day and does making a swap for plant-based improve the health. And in the burger's case, it it does. Uh, There is less saturated fat. There's no cholesterol. There's fiber and carbohydrates, as I mentioned, and they're getting the micronutrient profile very close. Um, the other interesting thing we're seeing is that these companies, once they get taste right and they're getting closer on price, they do tend to iterate their products and want to give consumers choice. So looking at Beyond Meat as an example, they came out earlier this year with a burger that contains 35% less saturated and total fat compared to an 80-20 ground beef burger and fewer calories. They're also planning to release another burger later this year with less than half of the saturated fat of an 80-20 beef burger. So I think we'll see more options for consumers as these businesses scale. But with health, you know, let's just let's think a little realistically and relatively speaking. And if I can make just one more point, which is, you know, when we talk about health, we're often talking about nutrition, which certainly on, on this podcast makes a lot of sense. But public health is also quite important. And their plant-based, you know, blows conventional meat out of the water. So there are three, three aspects to this. One is we use the vast majority of antibiotics to feed to animals because of the conditions they're raised in to keep them, you know, some, somewhat healthy at least. And antibiotic-resistant infections are on the rise. They're killing hundreds of thousands of people per year. And the UN has warned that if nothing changes, they can kill up to 10 million people in, I believe, in 2050, which is quite honestly uh, terrifying. And 
We've also seen pandemics driven by zoonotic diseases due to these crowded conditions uh, for these animals. It's very easy for these diseases to mutate and jump to people. So the risk of the next pandemics, as, as warned by the UN, similarly includes industrial animal agriculture and continued intensification. And then finally, you know, if you get a chicken breast, you're told you know, not to touch it when it's raw, clean off your countertop. And that's because there are a lot of foodborne illnesses that can be passed um, from this conventional meat. And, and you get rid of all of that risk if you're looking at plant-based foods. So, so interesting. So, you know, it goes beyond, like you said, the health. When you said public health, that's a great way to say that. You know that the International Food Information Council um they had a great statistic. They just did a whole survey on alternative protein. And they said about 74% of Americans would choose animal protein over cell-based protein. I mean, this is this moment in time. So what do you think it's going to take for the public, the majority of the public, or a good portion of the public to, to embrace this kind of plant-based alternative protein sources? Very interesting. So if I could start with making just one clarification, which is when we're talking about cell-based, that's kind of a third pillar of alternative protein. So we have the plant-based, we have the fermentation, and then we've got cell-based. And that's where we're taking a biopsy from an animal, and then we're growing the cells outside mm. of the animal. And what you're ending up with is meat. It's cellularly the same as, as your steak. So not per se from plants, but it is another option that uh, ameliorates a lot of these challenges we're talking about, feeding a growing population, environmental, public health challenges, and more. And we have seen some studies, and perhaps that look a little more optimistic than, than the one you quoted, but you're right, we're seeing that consumers, maybe around 30%, I think, in the U.S. say that they're very willing to eat cell-based or cultivated meat once it's available. In some other countries, we're seeing higher numbers. This actually isn't that low of a number, given that none of these consumers have seen this product ever. It, it had its first commercial sale in Singapore last year. So a, a few people have been lucky enough to try it. But the vast majority of the population barely knows what it is, hasn't seen it, hasn't heard of their family and friends trying it. And so, you know, that 30 to 60 percent saying in surveys they're they're very open to it is actually quite a good number. And we think that that's going to improve meaningfully once these products are actually on the market. Do you happen to know, Sharon, that if, if you do the cell base and if you take it from the animal, can you manipulate it to make a leaner meat product? That is a very good question. I don't precisely know the answer, but I do know that especially if you're open to genetic modification of some of these cells or, or even adaptation, right? Where you're exposing them to different uh, environments and they're adapting to them and then you're selecting, that you can select for characteristics that go beyond what is just naturally coming from an animal. Right now, we're just trying to replicate for the most part. You know, there's quite a bit of science and technology that goes into that. But looking forward, the sky really is the limit. We can create completely novel foods. We can create healthier foods. So I suspect that that is very much possible, but uh, I come from a finance background versus a scientific background, so I don't want to overstep uh, my knowledge base here. Yeah, well, I know the whole thing is absolutely fascinating, and I'm going to have to let you go because I want you to go back to the Good Food Institute and go back to that desk and keep working on this because I think this is fascinating. I think there's a lot of potential benefits, and we can live in a world that maybe we have a, a, a little bit of both. You know, we'd have to go all the way 
to the extreme be a vegan, but maybe we can have a little bit of both. Um, and, you know, so we can produce food in, in a sustainable way. That, and, and so the people really are in hungry and they get a, a healthy plate in front of them. So with that, my goodness, uh, I want to thank uh, Sharon Mary from the Good Food Institute for coming on and really helping us get a handle on this whole plant-based movement. So thank you, Sharon, for being on Spot On. Oh, you're so welcome. This was very fun. Spot On is supported by the Boston University Sargent College's Master of Science degree in Nutrition program. Log on to bu.edu to learn more about this fabulous nutrition graduate program. Thank you for listening to Spot On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This way you'll get every new episode every week. And by the way, leave us a nice review. And can you also like us on our Spot On Facebook page and suggest topics for future episodes? Please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Joan Salgy Blake. And oh, by the way, can you send this episode to five of your friends? Do I ask a lot of you?